W-E-R-U comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, our guest is Maria Girard. Uh, Maria is a former co-host. She's a Penobscot Nation tribal member, as well as a member of Tribal Council. And uh, she's presently um, a coordinator for REACH for their health uh, and, and wellness program. Uh, welcome to the show again, Maria. Thanks. It's good to be here, always. Yeah. Um, so we're going to cover a number of topics today. Uh, but first, I, I, what I'm really interested in that you've been doing for quite a while, I'm not sure how many years, but for a while, uh, you've been doing some uh, settlement research. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about that research? Sure. And, of course, what we're talking about with settlement research is the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act. And um, I started becoming intrigued with that topic. Oh, gosh, it must have been in the, the 1990s. So... Um, I was considering back then how everything that seems to come up in the tribe always seems to go back to the land claims. You know, what does the land claims say about things? And so um, I knew that in our community that it was sometimes a contentious issue, you know, to talk about the land claims. I knew that there was, um, you know, a lot of problems with it. And so I just wanted to set out to do an exploration of my own to see what I could find out about the land claims. And when I first started researching it, I really wasn't sure, you know, where it was going to go. Um, But when I finally uh, narrowed down on a topic area, I wrote about the original meaning and intent of the land claims uh, from Penobscot perspectives, because one thing that became very clear is that... um, what was meant and what was intended through the land claim suit never really materialized for for um, Penobscot and Passamaquoddy people. So you mean what was meant and intended from our perspective never materialized? That's right. So just a little um, background on the Maine Indian land claims for people who aren't familiar with it. And it's interesting to note that, you know, the Maine Indian land claims really encompassed um, a whole decade, you know, basically the end of the 60s up until, up until the settlement in 1980. And it caused, you know, so much chaos and disruption in the state, yet so little is mentioned of the land claims in Maine history. So a lot of people don't know much about uh, the Maine Indian land claims. But what the basis of that was 
was the Penobscot and the Passamaquoddy tribes in the state of Maine sued the state of Maine um, for the loss and the taking of um, a majority of their land base, which amounted to about two-thirds of the state of Maine. And um, they brought that suit in the early 1970s following a a series of events. And I think that a lot of the uh, momentum for the Maine Indian land claims came from uh, the 1960s when these... um, marginalized groups, so to speak, were really, you know, finding their voices and and speaking up and um, starting to demand some justice. And so um, through a whole series of, um, you know, unprecedented legal maneuvers, the Penobscots and the Passamaquoddies were able to um, actually take the state of Maine, um, you know, to I want to say to task, but <laughs> uh, that's probably not the correct word. But, you know, finally, they were looking for their due um, justice in the loss of all of this land for so many years. And it resulted in a settlement in 1980. And uh, originally, as the tribe set out to do this, their goals were to become um, affirmed as federally recognized tribes and to um, seek a land base the uh, thought was that um, in order for us to thrive and sustain ourselves culturally, we required a large land base, and so they were very much interested in reacquiring some land. Um, But I think the the most important piece that sometimes gets lost is that um, they were really looking for the state of Maine to get off the backs, uh, more or less. They had seen how um, life under the, the thumb of uh, the state of Maine government as it had exes- existed for, you know, since 1820, really wasn't working for them. So at the time when the tribes got together and um, really took on this, what seemed like an absurd challenge at the time, um, they were really at the bottom of the barrel and they didn't have anywhere else to go, in my opinion. The, the status of the communities was just so poor and um you know Maria I, I've often thought uh that had the tribes and the tribal communities been economically self-sufficient uh we would never have uh com- have done our land claims it'd never be a land claims that's probably true and um a lot of the, the losses that we sustained, um, you know, from the loss of the land really uh, was through a lot of, um, well, as we found out during the land claims, Ill- illegal maneuvers. Um, but with that loss of land came um, the loss of so many of our traditions, uh, particularly the way that we sustained ourselves. You know, the, the land was necessary for the fishing, for the hunting, for the gathering, Uh, And when we were no longer able to access that, um, we became very impoverished really fast. And it it seems to me, too, that uh, the, um, you talk about the residential school era, uh, that that philosophy about uh, save the, you know, kill the Indian and save the man, uh, the, uh, seemed to have carried over into the state perspective on things where they basically just wanted to uh, get rid of the, the tribes or, or 
or, or bring them into their uh, society uh, to sort of just eliminate them. Yes, I, I do believe that a lot of the attempts were um, very calculated. Um, I've heard, you know, uh, Native folks in, in a gathering talking about the different eras um, that we've um, lived through, you know, the era of um, outright extermination and then the era of uh, legislation and the era of adjudication. And so all these ways in which to... Um, quote unquote deal with the Indian problem and um, you know the problem was that we were in the way and they wanted the land (laughs) (laughs) so um, yeah so talking about the boarding school era uh, that you just mentioned um, I've been doing a lot of um, learning around that history and um, that was really like the the first major assault against the tribal communities um, that was really widespread happening in the late 1800s. So the, you know, the first boarding school that was was created. Um, and these were uh, industrial residential Indian boarding schools that took, you know, sometimes children as young as five years old and, and kept them, you know, for the whole duration of their school years. And um, these boarding schools were created and designed by um, an ex-military man, uh, Richard Henry Pratt, and he made no secret that you know, the purpose for these boarding schools was to kill the Indian and save the man. That was, that was his motto. And so um, by removing you know, hundreds of thousands of children from their tribal communities and putting them in these in residential boarding schools where they never had to think for themselves, you know, all their time every day was dictated to them. And um, that was, you know, one of uh, the most ex- extreme assaults against uh, indigenous communities. And people here in Maine were affected by the boarding school, so we didn't have any here in the state of Maine. A lot of our tribal members went to some of the local boarding schools. Um, a lot of Penobscots particularly went to Carlisle in Pennsylvania. Right. <clears throat> so... Uh that boarding, and again, you know, I, I keep going back to that 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 mindset of uh, extermination or hom- I want to say homogenation. Uh, that was that was brought into the the main state legislature and into a lot of their uh, their policies, uh, and and I think that's. That's why we were so impoverished, mm-hmm. uh, was because you know one of the very first things the legislature did was pass laws to uh, take tribal lands. That's right, and I've been doing a lot of my research in the legislative resolves, you know, from the 1820 and and moving forward, and you can see in there clearly um, a lot of calculated efforts um, to carry about their business. Um, you know, one of them was, um, let's see, well, first let me back up a little bit and, and talk about treaties. You know, we, uh, the Penobscots, Passamaquoddy, had originally uh, signed treaty agreements. And um, in those agreements, we, we retained certain um, freedoms and um, certain lands. We retained certain lands. And in, you know, one of the treaties that was signed in 1818, we had reserved um, 
four townships. There was um, townships in Brewer that we had reserved at one point, and then there was four upper townships, and those were located in the areas of Chester and Mattawamkeg and then um, Millinocket. And let's see, so statehood was in 1820, and by 1833, we lost those um, townships which had been reserved in perpetuity, which means forever, can never be changed, uh, took 13 years. And um, in piecing together, the history has been really interesting. Um, you know, I've seen stories in the historical record about how um, the, the point at Mattawamkeg, which, which was a, a large Penobscot village located at that site and in the early 1800s, that's where the chief, uh, John Attian, actually resided. And uh, for some reason, <laughs> the state of Maine wanted uh, that land real bad. And, you know, there's a lot of different theories around why. Um, I've heard it said that it was because they needed to, um, you know, build this Canada road. We had to build this road to, you know, through the townships to Canada because during the early 1800s, Maine and Canada was still fighting and arguing over the northern border. And so it was believed that, you know, the Indians living in the northern border couldn't really secure the border um, well enough. I've heard it said that they needed those townships so that they could build taverns for the people who were working and building this road. Um, and then I've heard it said that it was, you know, for the dam, but the dams didn't come till a little bit later. But it was it was quick. And, um, you know, in the legislative resolves, you can see where uh, a particular uh, state official, and I, I forget his name, unfortunately, was sent to Penobscot to talk to the chief about letting go of that, those lands um, of the townships. And when he went to Indian Island, he only was able to meet with the priest, and the chief refused to come down to talk with him because um, just a couple years prior, Mattawamkeg Point, where the chief had been living, was was burnt to the ground and all the crops were destroyed and all the um, shelters that the, the Penobscots had there were destroyed. And when this man went, <laughs> you know, he went to Indian Island to try to get this land, the chief wouldn't even come down and talk to him because he was so angry about that. And, you know, you see where he goes back and reports to the legislature that he was unsuccessful. So then that's when that legislation comes out that says it's okay if the Indians want to sell their land. It's their choice, even though we had already signed an agreement just a you know, decade prior uh, reserving those lands in perpetuity. And so... Um, yeah, it's really unfortunate to see how that happens. And some of the justification around, um, you know, the Indians being able to sell their lands and for the state to be able to make the decision for them um, was also embedded in legislation, which basically deemed the Penobscots as too imbecile to take care of their own affairs. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the thing about the, the legislative records back then uh, was that uh, they didn't, the way that they recorded the sessions, they recorded them by newspaper reporters. And you could, you would read the, 
the legislative uh, sessions, what happened, you would have to get a newspaper to see that. Uh, and it's, was, it's really um, eye-opening to go back on those microfiche mm-hmm. and look at the newspapers that were printed back then. And particularly around this date of the, the townships and what happened. Uh, there was a, there was an inquiry. The the uh, they didn't give up. I mean, the state sent four more uh, people to negotiate, and uh, these this time the negotiations were successful, and there were uh, questions as to uh, whether or not the signatures were were real, and whether or not the uh, actual signatories had agreed, and uh, this was brought to the legislature in a, a, a whole delegation of uh, 70 people showed up, the Penobscots, to the state legislature and said, we didn't agree to sell these townships. Mm-hmm. And we want you to, to investigate this and look into it. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, just recently, um, probably within the past year or so, when I was working at the university's Wabanaki Center, we were having a discussion about this this particular piece of history and um, you know the the documents and how they were signed and who they were signed by and I think it was that piece that was um, letting um, those townships go and there was some signatures on there but they weren't the signatures of anyone in tribal government and in fact I had contacted the Penobscot uh, genealogy department to ask them uh, to look up those names and the two main signatories on that piece of paper, we didn't even have records of those names in our genealogical records. Yeah. So I don't know if they were actual people or not. Yeah. Interesting. But anyway, what... what you we know, digress. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> what actually happened was legislature said, no, we're not going to look into it. Uh, you know, live with it. That's basically... It was a long, dr- drugged-out process, but that was the, that was the bottom line. Um, so unfortunately, I think that, you know, a lot of these stories are, are yet to be told. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of um, tribal historians and, and scholars, and we're um, together, we're, we're piecing together this information, but it's taken us a long time. We're still uncovering uh, facts, and we're still uncovering information to really make that history full. Right, and... Uh I think we were talking earlier about, uh, so you have a, a, a class at Bates that you, you teach? Well, I was able to co-teach a class just recently uh, during the spring term at Bates. I co-taught uh, Wabanaki history there, and we had 22 students. And, um, yeah, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed that. And we did, you know, a whole overview. It was very quick and, and very... Um, surface level. It was so hard, you know, to not really be able to get uh, in depth. But, um, you know, we covered everything from, you know, origin stories to archaeology, which places uh, Wabanaki people here in this place um, about 11,000 years ago. And uh, we talked a lot about contemporary issues um, a lot about the land claims because, like I said, everything seems to come back to the land claims, you know, when you're looking at some of the more contemporary issues that crop up in the news. Gaming, for instance, that goes back to the land claims. Uh, pollution, uh, 
uh, jurisdiction over the river, uh, elvers, even housing, you know, becomes political because of this land claims um, settlement act. Um, (laughs) You know, that's why I brought up Bates. I think you said you had invited uh, Patterson, the attorney, to talk (laughs) to your class. Yes, um, we had. So... In in the class, we were using this model of comparison histories. And um, so when we came to the, the week that we were going to discuss the land claims, uh, my, my co-teacher wanted to assign my master's thesis, which I had written about the land claims. The, um, and the title of that thesis is The Original Meaning and Intent of the Maine Indian Land Claims, Penobscot Perspectives. And so, you know, to be fair to the students and to offer a counter uh, perspective, I knew of this other piece that had been written recently by John Patterson. Now, John Patterson was a a former deputy AG during uh, the land claims negotiation, and he wrote an article for uh, the Maine History Journal which basically outlined his recollections of um, that time frame. And, um, and it was interesting. It was really interesting, <laughs> um, you know, to hear him talk about his, his recollections. He didn't, you know, we didn't get down in the weeds very much. But um, just, you know, I guess the one thing that stood out for me the most and... Um, <clears throat> was when we were talking about the jurisdictional piece because a lot of us in the tribal communities that have been focused on um, the shortcomings of the land claims for a very long time are, are aware of this um, piece of the the law that seems to have been inserted, you know, in the 11th hour. And it's this... Um, you know, in the federal act, it's called 1735B, which is very limiting limiting language that really sets us apart and treats us differently from all the other um, 362 federally recognized tribes in the country. It it, it isolates us from Indian country. It absolutely does. And so when we were having this discussion in the class, um, you know, Patterson shared that that jurisdictional piece was the best thing they ever did. And then he, you know, kind of stumbled and said, well, Maybe not for you guys, he says to me. Um, you know, and he actually said that that piece was meant to assimilate the tribes. And I don't know about you, but in my experience, most tribal people just hate that word. We don't want to hear that anyone's trying to assimilate. Well, you know, I mean, it, it just tells me that that paradigm that the state has always had about eliminating the tribes. Uh, is, is alive and well, and particularly uh, represented very well in the land claims language. Yes, I agree, and it's and it's really unfortunate. You know, um, like I said, our, our story's yet to be told. We're still um, sharing it with people. Um, I do feel good that um, you know, in the past seven or eight years, I've done a number of um, educational outreach to a number of various organizations, you know, church groups and college classrooms and activism gatherings and, and um, you know, everything in between. And it seems to me that um, people just don't know. And when they do know the history and they get a better understanding of how we got to this place, you know, in the here and now, 
that they're pretty sympathetic and they're um yeah they're not only sympathetic but they're pretty upset yeah that they were lied to mm-hmm. or, or not even told anything that's been my experience so, and so yeah. you know i think as um you know tribal folks in our communities where we don't realize that we have that outpouring of support because we're not out there and we're not you know engaging with so many people but um you know i hope if anything, I can impress upon our tribal folks that there are a lot of good people out there, a lot of good allies who are willing to, you know, stand up and work with us. And, you know, oh, my gosh, we've been fighting forever, you know, and can we just stop? Can we just find a better way of doing things? And, you know, in order to do that, we're really going to have to come to some understanding. We have to, we have to stop fighting for our very mm-hmm. existence before Yes, uh, absolutely. So, uh, <clears throat> so when I, you know, when we were originally talking about my land claims research, I just wanted to share with you sort of my thought process about when I had cho- chosen that topic. Um, you know, because I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to um, research, but like I said, I, everything seemed to come back to the land claims, um, and I had read a book by Jack Rakoff, and it was the original, it was about original meaning and intent in historical documents. And uh, Rakoff actually talked about there being understand, misunderstandings of um, intent and meaning in documents like the Constitution, you know, things that seem so common and every day, and you would think that people knew what the framers were writing and meaning, but that's not the case. And so Rakoff was saying that in order to really understand um, the meaning of a written document, that it was necessary to go back in time and to get a full understanding of the historical context in which that document was created. And so that's what I was doing in my research. I was looking for the historical content of the time period when Uh, the land claims was happening. So in the 1960s with, you know, this radical movement and the American Indian movement and the Red Pride movement and all of these things that really empowered us to to take this stand. Um, But also all the other land claims that were happening across the nation and, you know, all these uh, Native tribes were standing up and demanding justice and we were just, you know, one of those so the the federal government, let's see, what was I going to say? Vine Deloria was describing the, the time frame in the federal government when um, there was like the most um, concern about Indian uprisings as being uh, the 1970s, 1974, for example. And all these tribes are rising up, and they're trying to squash them down, and they're really concerned, and everyone wants the land claims. And so we were up against this huge you know, power dynamic, and our land claims was just one in all kinds. So um, I think a lot of times up here, we forget about that, and we just look at it in isolation and think like, oh, man, did we really screw up there? <laughs> but, you know, we had... Everyone against us, everyone trying to just, you know, simmer us down and put the lid on us and um, take care of this this widespread uh, land claims that was going on. So ours was just one of many. Uh, I do want to, 
I did, you know, I did want to get to your uh, experience in your new position in REACH. Yeah. To go into that a little bit. (coughs) Excuse Uh, me. Now, this, uh, your health and wellness coordinator. Yes. What does that entail? Um, Well, first of all, Maine Wabanaki REACH uh, is an organization um, that has primarily been responsible for the creation of the Maine Wabanaki Truth and Reconciliation Commission, although it did it under another name. So now Maine Wabanaki Reach is preparing our communities for the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but also um, beyond that. So the, the Maine TRC will be completed in November of 2015, but the work of Reach will continue. And particularly in my health and wellness coordinator role, um, we're focusing on historical trauma and uh, intergenerational trauma. And um, it has been, it's been really interesting because as a historian, I never imagined in a million years that, you know, I would be focusing on anything that had to do with, um, you know, health. But um, we're learning that um, the effects of historical trauma and uh, what I mean by historical trauma are the, um, you know, the accumulative effects of traumatic assaults and traumatic actions and how those um, are carried down generation after generation. So the fear or the distrust or um, any of those emotions that stem out of this, this very long history um, are affecting us today. And um, so Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart is a um, hunk papa and Oglala Sioux woman who had really coined the concept in the 1980s when she started wondering, um, you know, why aren't, why aren't the um, Native communities really living up to the American dream? What's going on here that we don't seem able to, um, to reach certain aspirations? And so she started looking at um, all the effects of this historical trauma and all of these accumulated losses, you know, the loss of land being the most obvious, Um, the loss of land, which resulted in the loss of livelihood. So we were no longer able to um, care for ourselves and, um, yeah, to, to care for ourselves as our ancestors had traditionally. And so this whole series of losses, loss of language, I mean, even today, you know, we have a lot of hangups around the fact that, you know, some of us can't speak our language. And um, I should I should talk real briefly about that term losses. You know, I'm, I'm using that term loosely because most of these weren't just losses like you lost your keys or misplaced your keys. You know, these were um, takings. And so the land was taken. Um, our livelihood was taken from us when we could no longer, you know, go to the the river and, and fish and um, or go on the lands and, and hunt. Um, the language that was taken from us, boarding schools being the number one assault on native languages uh, when children weren't allowed any longer to speak their languages. And there's a lot of these stories in our tribal communities, even, you know, some of the older generations talking about, you know, being punished for speaking their native language in school. 
And so all of these leaves a wound, and that wound is um, transmitted across the generations. Um, you know, one story that somebody had shared once was about the fear of um, police officers. And um, they had related it back to when they were a child. And whenever a strange vehicle would come on the island with a police car, um, this person's mother hid the children in a closet because when they saw that, they were afraid that their children were going to be taken away from them. And this happened so much over a long period of time where, um, you know, state officials were able to come into tribal communities and remove children. Um, so that's, you know, an example of that trauma. So when she sees the police officers, she's traumatized and she, she goes back to, to that. And that's, you know, a very simple um, for example, but we're we're starting to to piece together um, the information, so we're able to say, you know, when we're talking about, for example, loss of loved ones, you know, a lot of times when we talk history, we talk statistics. We're saying um, Native people experienced a ninety eight percent population loss. Well, that's the statistic. In reality, it's that. You know, hundreds of thousands of people were experiencing the loss um, caused by the death of a loved one, and um, a lot of times these these deaths were really traumatic and really um, purposeful. So they were, you know, yes, there was disease, um, smallpox, and and whatnot. Um, but there was also out-and-out warfare, and there was also extermination, which is um, evident in some of the um, scalp proclamations, which still remain in history today. So REACH is, is, is dealing with this intergenerational trauma. Uh, I've heard it also referred to as a soul wound. Mm. I think uh, that brings to mind Eunice Bauman. I think she used that term. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's lots of uh, deep embedded uh, trauma involved with what REACH is trying to do and trying to sort of get people to talk in these communities. So are you hearing people talk? Are they are they coming to the commission meetings and, and talking to the commission? Or Yes. Um, so... The, the main Wabanaki Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was seated in um, 2012, they have visited all of the tribal communities in Maine now. They've been um, at the two Passamaquoddy communities down east. They've been at Penobscot Nation, and they've been up north at um, the Mi'kmaq and Maliseet reservations. And so far, we've had over 40 tribal individuals share statements with um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And while the the goal of the TRC is to really investigate what happened to Wabanaki children who were taken into uh, state foster care during the 1970s up to present, they are also hearing a lot of different stories 
um, about trauma in the tribal communities. And so they're willing to listen to all of these stories which will inform their report so that they are getting a good historical context as well. And um, and they visited each of the tribal communities. They have received over 40 individual statements and they're still um, in the process of investigating and they're also doing some um, research into secondary resources as well to to build their report. And so um, the work that I'm doing in the health and wellness area um, is really focused on informing our own tribal people about uh, our history and about this concept of historical trauma. And what I'm finding is um, a lot of relief because um, a lot of people realize that, you know, we've we've had these um, traumatic experiences over history, um, but not really understanding what was going on behind all that was happening. You know, we were just chit-chatting about, you know, the loss of uh, the four townships. And so understanding their history has really been empowering. And understanding the concepts um, behind historical trauma, I think, has been really healing in and of itself. Um, and I have equated it to, um, have you, if anyone has ever been sick or if anyone has had a loved one who's been, you know, sick for a very long time and not really knowing what was wrong with them. And then finally you get a diagnosis. And even though, you know, you got the diagnosis, you're relieved that now you finally understand and you know, and that's a point um, from which to begin healing. And so this is what I think is happening in our in our communities. Um, you know, one of the most exciting things for me uh, working in this position is to uh, see how the conversation around healing has really become commonplace in our communities now. You know, we're able to have those discussions. We're able to, to realize that we have a lot of healing to do. Um, and so it's it's really been, in my estimation, really empowering for people to be involved. Yeah. But you not only uh, gather testimony uh, in what you do, but you, you do other things with the community as well. Uh, yes, it's a, um, it's a little bit of a complex structure, but not really once you're used to it. I, I know I had a hard time wrapping my mind around the, the separations between Maine Wabanaki Reach and the Maine Wabanaki TRC. Um, but Maine Wabanaki Reach is really focused on our uh, tribal communities and strengthening and empowering our people through through knowledge, through support. And uh, we have Wabanaki community organizers in each of the um, five tribal communities. And we get together on a regular basis to do a lot of... Um, uh, capacity building of the organizers to allow them to strengthen their organizing ability in the tribal communities and to receive a lot of different um, and good, useful education. Um, one one workshop that we had together was called Justice in the Body, and it was conducted by Sage Hayes, and I believe um, Justice in the Body is out of Portland. And that was a, 
just an incredible workshop, very eye-opening. They're focused on historical trauma and the, you know, the effects in in the body. Um, for instance, um, just very recently, the Penobscots had uh, released a health assessment survey, the findings of a health assessment survey that they worked on. And one of the questions in the survey was about historical trauma, and it asked uh, all the people, and it was a pretty good uh, collection of individuals that they surveyed over, over a long period of time, how many people thought about... Um, the losses, the loss of land and the loss of language and these sorts of traumas on a daily basis. And it was a pretty big number. It was like 23% of the people thought about it every day Wow! in some form. Mm -hmm. And then another um, survey that was conducted by um, Maine Wabanaki Reach, um, one of the questions was, you know, when you think about these losses, What's the, what is the feeling or what is the emotion that comes up for you? And the majority of the people answered anger. And so if you think about, you know, how that manifests in our body, you know, we got all these people that are thinking about these losses on a regular basis who are feeling angry for that. Mm-hmm. And how does that anger, you know, affect our, our physical and our mental and emotional well-being on a regular basis? Mm. So it's it's been very interesting and, and eye-opening for sure. But you, you do other things too. You, you talk about uh, community garden or something like that or food, food security, that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, at one point when we got, we got together, uh, the, the larger group, we started brainstorming where we wanted to focus in our tribal communities. When we talk about healing or building up our communities, what are the sorts of things that we wanted to most focus on? And so we did some brainstorming and we came up with um, the idea of decolonizing, you know, taking back what had been taken away from us. And so some of what had been taken uh, were our rituals. So we were specific about wanting to learn more about our traditional birth rituals. We wanted to learn about traditional death rituals um, and also coming-of-age ceremonies. We were interested in doing work around food security and also around communication. So communication being, you know, the, the basis and the foundation for good relations. And so in my health and wellness role, I have been conducting some research in those areas and and compiling information. And in the fall, we'll have an intertribal wellness gathering. um, And we're we're narrowing in on October for that wellness gathering in which we will have panels and, you know, Wabanaki experts who are able to talk more in depth about these particular areas that we decided to focus on. And, um, you know, we'll see what grows out of that. Um, The food security piece is um, of particular interest to me. Um, I love gardening and playing in the dirt, and I coordinate the People's Garden on Indian Island. And um, what we're hoping to do is to gather all the, the food growers in the various tribal communities to bring us all together and talk about how we can... um, make sure that all of our nutritional needs are met together through our various food operations. And so that will be something that will be uh, exciting to talk about and 
you know, what what will come out of it, I don't know, but I am looking forward to having, you know, all these people and these, you know, experts, uh, so to speak, under one roof and seeing what sort of synergy can come out of that. So, and, uh, you know, REACH doesn't plan on going anywhere. Um, like I said, the main uh, Wabanaki TRC will be finished with their business in November of 2015, but REACH will continue on and you know part of the role that we see for ourselves is ensuring that any recommendations that come out of the TRC's report will be followed and adhered so we will kind of see ourselves as a watchdog group for that those recommendations so do you see um like uh, the TRC or or reach uh just since this new uh, branch has started, since the new reach has begun, do you see these meetings that you have, you see, do you see things evolving uh, to new things that you probably never even thought of doing during these meetings? Or Well, it's it's been really interesting to be part of the meetings and to see how how we move together, sort of at glacial speeds sometimes, but always collectively. And these meetings, um, you know, aren't just tribal folks. It's also um, folks from USM, the Muskie School, um, DHHS uh, workers from the state and from the tribes and uh, the community organizers. And it's, you know, really an eclectic mix of folks, but in my opinion, everyone's heart's in the right place, and we're all focused on healing and finding a better way forward. And that's really, you know, what this work is all about, because I don't think there's any secret or any mystery behind the history anymore. Um, People are realizing um, it hasn't been the best of times, and our tribal state relations are incredibly challenged and always have been. But, um, you know, it's no secret anymore, okay? We know, and we know what the past has been like, and we don't want to do that anymore. And there's enough people out there, I think, um, to make a difference. And just recently, uh, there was an article in the Bangor Daily, I think it was last week, about the work of Maine Wabanaki Reach. And we also have Maine community organizers. We have three Maine community four main community organizers that are doing phenomenal work uh, outreaching to uh, the main communities about the work of the TRC, about the history of the tribes here. And um, we're really finding a lot of um, sympathetic supporters and, and people who are ready to kind of roll up their sleeves and say, okay, how do we fix this? And um, I don't know. Where it's going to end up, we'll find out when we get there. Yeah. But, you <laughs> but know, you know, it's been an it's an interesting journey, and sure. I think it's you know heading in the right direction. Yeah, and you know, as in anything, um, there's always the naysayers, mm-hmm. the people that come out and say, "Well, you didn't do this, and you didn't do that, and uh, we don't think this is going to work." And uh, so, have you heard a lot of that stuff? We've heard a little bit about that, and what I would say to that is, have they really taken the time to understand the full scope of what we're trying to do? When the TRC is trying to um, um, provide a venue for tribal folks who have been um, damaged and uh, mistreated under certain systems to allow them the space to 
um, share their voices and to share their perspectives and to inform, um, hopefully, future policies that will um, consider the best practices for child welfare. Um, I think that's very healing. Speaking our truth is one method of healing. And so the TRC really has opened the door to allow that to happen. So this, the piece that they're focusing on, the Indian child welfare, well, that's just a slice of the pie. You know, there's so many things that we could focus on. A lot of people have said we should have a truth commission, you know, for just tribal state relations, period. We've heard people say there should be a, a truth commission around the main Indian land claims because we... You know, all of us tribal folks know that that is um, sort of like a re-injury. You know, we we made this big stand. We were going to get our land back. We we're going to sue for justice. And then we were re-injured by it. And so a lot of people feel that that was yet another tool in the toolbox to keep us oppressed. So it's been continually... And, well, it's been continual and it's been accumulative, just like historical trauma is. And... Um, we're starting to see that and identify that and um, looking for ways out of that. And I'm, I'm feeling really hopeful. So <laughs> that's oh, my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, that's I have this little quote on my folder here, uh, which I just love. It's from the video, The Well Briety Journey to Forgiveness, uh, which is one of the um, videos that we used in our education process and in reach with our folks in the tribal communities. And the quote says, we are at a critical mass at the tipping point of a tremendous movement to take place in the healing effort. And, um, you know, there's been prophecies that has pro- have prophesized um, this healing time. And I believe that we are in that healing time now, and you know it's going to be painful. Yeah, it is. It's a painful history for right. sure. The, but there's, there are people who are saying that. Um, well, what about the? Uh, you're calling yourselves uh, truth and reconciliation. So, you, you know, you've got the pretty much got the truth part out there. So, what about the reconciliation? Where's that coming? What's going to happen there? We have started some very preliminary discussions around that, and I believe that one of the questions that are being asked when um, people are coming forward to give their statements to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I believe they are being asked, you know, what does that look like? Um, And so, you know, very initially, we are thinking that what reconciliation looks like in um, the tribal communities is going to look different depending on the community and what they identify as being um, their biggest needs. And so um, there hasn't been any sort of discussion around reparations. That's not at all what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was was um, meant to focus on. Um, and really, you know, the losses that people have endured over these centuries is really irreplaceable. So I don't even know if there's anything that could repair that other than for people to stop doing it, to stop the genocidal practices, to stop assaulting, to stop um, re-traumatizing tribal people and to, to learn you know, the history, our collective history, you know, a lot of times we say, oh, Native history. Well, it isn't just Native history. It takes two to tango. This is tribal and state history. And, um, you know, a lot of the folks that I've talked to just want that 
damaging behavior to stop because it's still with us today. Right, and for the damaging behavior to stop, you have to know you're doing it, mm-hmm. and you have to be educated in that. And and I know people are, you know, they, they, people say, well, you know, I'm tired of hearing that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear it anymore. Let's move on. Uh, well, we're tired of living it, but, uh, and we it, don't want to live it anymore. Exactly. And so they have to know that it's still happening. Exactly. You know, when, um, you know, we talk about territorial loss, the Penobscots are in a, in a legal battle right now because they were challenged by the state of Maine and threatened um, if we didn't agree that our reservation didn't include the water. Now that's ridiculous. We received, you know, a letter from the state of Maine saying, oh, by the way, your reservation doesn't include the river. Well, that's just crazy. And so the takings continue. Right. So, um, we have a, a few more minutes here to go. Um, we, uh, I, I know that uh, Maya Angelo passed, and uh, you know Maya Angelo had said some really great things and and did a very, you know, lived a a, a great uh, activist life, uh, and, and she basically said what she what she thought. And uh, said it in such a way that that people savored her words, wrote them down, and you know I I wanted I want to say that one of the my favorite quotes from Maya Angelou was because uh, you know being in the legislature and whatever uh, was don't always I can't remember the exact word but stop catching put oh, stop putting a catcher's mitt on both hands. Mm-hmm. And start throwing something back. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's <coughs> kind of describes what we need to do. Mm. So uh, and and you have something uh, that you would like to read from Maya Angelou. That yes, I brought with me um, Maya Angelou's poem "Still I Rise," and so this really makes me think about that truth telling work that is occurring not only with uh, Maine Wabanaki Reach and the Maine Wabanaki TRC, but the, um, you know, our indigenous scholars, historians, all those, those people that are really working to, um, to rise up out of the bowels of history. (laughs) So uh, we're going to, we get in the last few minutes of the show here, um, we're going to hear Maria uh, read this, uh, this poem from uh, Maya Angelou. Go ahead, Maria. Still I rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust I rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes? Shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries. Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Cause I laugh like I got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words, you may cut me with your eyes. 
You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I rise. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide. Welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Thank you, Maria. So, um, that's the end of our show for today. Um, you're listening to uh, WERU, Wabanaki Windows. Uh, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and we've been talking to uh, Maria Gerard. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, and uh, I want to say that uh, the, uh, the music for our show uh, is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. Uh, so thank you again for being with the show and tune in, tune in again next month uh, for another Wabanaki Windows Support for WERU comes from the Acadia Trad Schools Celtic Music Festival.